So walls have been going up as you're giving. Remember your pledges towards a building project. We've got uh, quite a few funds still yet to raise. Um, and so uh, we, we're trusting God for that, but things are going well. Uh, probably this week we'll see a majority of the walls up by the end of the week. And um, there will be one week that um, we'll be at convention for the National RV Maps Convention, and there won't be much going on that week because our volunteers will be gone. I'll be gone. Uh, Nathan will be going with us. Um, be in prayer. If you have a chance to stop by the property during the week at any time, it just help us and a presence being there. Uh, so people won't think we've abandoned all of our supplies. <laughs> so um, anyway, just be praying uh, for us as we uh, continue with that. You know, how many of you would be really troubled if I told you I voted for Nixon? If I, and some of you that were in first service are like, wait a minute, he didn't start this way. But as we're in worship, I, I, I just, just let me play around a little bit if you will. But how many that just really, really upset you if you really thought that's true? I voted for Nixon. Some of you are like, how old is he? Let's see. <laughs> Too young. But if, if, how many, how many I voted for Nixon bumper stickers have you seen in traffic this week? Anybody? That, that car's probably not on the road, right, anymore. But, but, you know, if when Nixon had just had his heyday of troubles and I was still proclaiming that he was the best president ever and I still stand behind him, if we were in that time and place, some of you would be very angry with me as conservative Christians. You'd be like, but, but he's a deceiver. How can you stand by him? He's, you know, his name isn't very controversial anymore. It's just more historic, right? It doesn't really stir up controversy. Here, here's the thing. We've been talking about worshiping in spirit and truth that if you... If you go to a church because your church experience is to go and you sing some songs and you hear the word and you feel good about it and you go and then you go about your life, then, then you're, you're talking to the wrong pastor because that disgusts me more than anything to, to go at doing life together as Christians in just the same old, same old, we just come together for a few hours and that's it. I either want all of what God has or I want all of what God has. But I don't want to do it with people who don't want all of what God has. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because we're saying there's, there's power in his name. If I went to a stadium and I started yelling the name, Jesus! 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 Now there's two things that can happen. One, if I don't have him live in my heart, and I'm just using his name flippantly, it's probably not going to do anything other than people think that man's crazy. Somebody shut him up. If I walked into some theological debate between atheists and whatever, and I start saying, proclaim the name of Jesus, and I have him living in me, you guarantee that name will stir up controversy. It did thousands of years ago. It did hundreds of years ago. It will hundreds from now if Jesus doesn't come back before then. But that name will always stir up controversy. And I have to ask the atheist. I have to ask the person who maybe hasn't fully committed to the Lord. I have to ask the person that plays church or plays Christian. I have to ask the person who reads the Bible and thinks it's a bunch of stories. Why is that name so controversial? Why above any other name, no matter what day and time it is, no matter what culture, no matter where you are around the world, that name stirs things up. I could get up and yell the name Buddha and people would, would uh, applaud me for going for a peaceful religion, you know, supposedly, or, or um, hire a Christian or whatever. If I chose something, there's really, people will be like, well, that's great for you, there's not much. But there's something about when you try to bring Jesus into a school, a courtroom, or anything where it confronts people with, now you're in my space with that name. I want you out of my space. You know, you look at the news articles and they can teach on uh, Muslim faith or other things at school as a historical thing, but if you start teaching on Christianity, even from a historical aspect, there's controversy. Because of the power of that name. That's nothing, that's not even more the messages today. I'm just telling you, the first service got a different dose of something else, and today that's what you're getting because there may be people here today that so far, religion, Christianity, this whole thing, it doesn't really connect with your day-to-day -day life. You haven't really ever felt the power of God coursing through your veins. And so it's not real to you. It's like when the children of Israel, you know, God had a problem with the, the, those that crossed over the Red Sea and the miracles that happened. You know, some generations later, they didn't keep telling the story of how the power of God, the, the children didn't experience that. And, and generations later, the kids don't even know about the power of God. And we're in a society now where there's generations, they don't know the power of God. The church got complacent. The, the church stopped with the operation of the gifts of the Spirit moving among them and, and people being delivered and healed. And 
You know, it's happening in other countries, but in the United States, we're seeing less and less of the miracles happening. And it's not about the miracles, it's about the lives that are changed by the miracles that keep telling the story. And so the story is not being told. And so in the first service, the same thing I'll tell you is, this isn't meant to condemn you or to make you feel bad or anything, but it's just a reality check. If you wear the name of Christian, if you say I'm a Christian, I have to ask you, where is your fruit? Where's your fruit? Now I get it. And the scripture talks about, it uses the analogy of if you're, if you're a farmer, some plant the seed. Somebody, somebody makes the soil right for the seed and they put the seed in and they cover it up. And maybe somebody else comes by and they water it, right? And the sun shines on it and then, and then all of a sudden the plant grows and the fruit or the vegetable and then it's harvested and somebody else reaps it and somebody else eats it on their table that was purchased. And so there's a chain there, right, uh, of, of labor into, into growing something from a little dead seed. And, and much the same way. So maybe when I say, where's your fruit, I'm not saying like you have a thousand followers uh, that like Jesus went and disciples and then thousands were at their numbers daily. You know, maybe you don't have a thousand people at work who are now coming with you to church, but still there should be a progression of where's your fruit. What in your heart has God done that is overflowing to others and changing their life? That's the simplicity of what we're talking about. Are we talking about perfection? That you've got to somehow be perfect? Danny, you've got to be perfect? Hope not. Hope not. You know, I just, I just bet that the, the, man, the lame man that could walk had some calluses on his rear end from sitting all this time from not being able to walk. And we got healed and he went around saying, I, I can walk. You know, he still had some calluses, right? He wasn't perfect. God didn't, I'm sure he didn't have his glorified body yet that everything functioned, but, but the main sore spot in his life was taken care of and healed to glorify God. And so what has God done in your life that you're speaking about to others? Amen. And if you say, I'm not sure, it, it, you know, I almost started both services today with testimony time. Tell me, you know, about someone you witnessed to or tell me about what God has done in your life. And chances are, not to knock it, if this would be your example, was God help me pay a bill. God help me you know, do this. And those are great. But we're talking about, where's the people that say, you know what? I was addicted to pornography and God delivered me. Those things that we don't want to speak of. It's easy. God help me pay a bill. Oh, he's the God of provision. Everybody can amen that. Who wants more money? You know, God wants you to have more money. That's easy gospel to sell because everybody wants money. But who wants to admit their hidden things that they're ashamed of? And the enemy wants to rob you because he wants to keep you ashamed of yourself yeah. and make you think that the power of God can't course through your veins. Yep. That you can't be a chosen, beloved, who he wants his Holy Spirit to light you up and you literally under the power of the Holy Spirit speak things into somebody's life that only God could know of them and for them to break in front of your eyes and for change to happen in their life because you spoke things that nobody, even you, would not know. That happens. That's happened to me in the last two weeks. I'm not saying it braggingly. I'm saying... That's why I'm on fire about this. I want you to experience that. I, I've had somebody in my office where they're smiling when I say, is everything okay? Or, or actually, was, things aren't okay, are they? And they break. How do I know? I'm just telling you that we as a church, and the church across the street, and the church down the street, and the church is all around the Bible Belt, where we've got a smorgasbord of any kind of flavor of church you want, we've all got to come to the realization is, this is about relationship with a powerful God. You can spend your time arguing about what's the correct way to worship and what's the correct way of songs and do you raise your hands or not. Churches split over those things. And while you're arguing about whether hands need to be up or down in worship and that's the way church is supposed to be done, all the time your neighbor is dying, going to hell or their marriage is breaking apart or their kids are being abused and all this stuff happens around us as believers. And we make it about our enjoyment and a worship experience over the life change of people who need it. And we become selfish and we want to just consume and consume and it's like the analogy if you saw a baby who stayed in a high chair and as their body began to grow they just kept being fed right and pretty soon that belly starts kind of overlapping the tray right you're getting an image and that diaper starts getting stretched and the sides start to pop and that person never leaves that high chair they just keep being fed and fed become uh, overweight and it just keeps happening and all of a sudden they're not using those muscles and their muscles just wither and start to go you know become useless and that that grown person can't walk and function like they're supposed to. And pretty soon, if those limbs aren't used and all that stuff being fed is not being put to use, then things start to die. And the church is the same way. God uses the analogy that we're one body, but we're many parts, right? 
and that if you don't use, he tells the, the, the analogy of the talents given to some men, and one man hides his talents instead of putting it to use, and he gets scolded by his master, and it's the whole same story of if you don't use what God is putting before you to use, you'll wither and die spiritually. And before I even get into what the message was planned for today, I'm just going to challenge you. This isn't just a preacher standing before you, giving you some words this week. Discover the power of the Almighty God that is able to wake you up in the middle of the night and put somebody on your mind and drop you to your knees in prayer and find out the next day that they are hanging on by a thread in the emergency room or their family was coming apart and they were in an all-night argument with their wife. Find out the power of God to speak to you real time. Nobody can ever tell you after that that God is not real because you've interacted with the powerful God. Atheists can talk till they're blue in the face about how prove to them that's a God. You've got to show them and say, I can't because Jesus came, God came in human form. And people who were the religious people, the church people, didn't even believe who he was and they killed him for it. So I can't prove to you by logic who he is. You've got to be willing to experience him in your heart before he can be proven to you. And even as Christians, we have the same problem the atheist does. We have to be willing to experience him in our heart before he can prove to you. You don't want to be laid out speaking in a heavenly language. You'd rather be a different denomination because that doesn't feel comfortable to you. Then you will miss out on finding out what it's like to have the all-powerful God speak a heavenly language for you. And you get up. And not so you had a fuzzy doodad and your church looked like they're having revival. But because that week all of a sudden you're out there and you can't be shut up and you're telling everybody about God just like in the book of Acts. That's how it happened for them. You're no longer hiding out fearful of what happens when you speak the name of Jesus. You're out there willing to be, be crucified for the name of Christ. And that's truly what we're doing here. Why sign up to come sit in a seat week after week for a few hours and say I'm a Christian and, and go through all this stuff if you're not willing to experience him? If you're not really ready to experience him. And I'm... I'm paid to be a pastor and that messes with people because you think that's just me and, and I'm just wound up and, and I'm telling you that if I was not in this role God can do the same thing he's doing to me now it has nothing to do with my role other than he's doing to, to me first sometimes so that he can get through to you because it's the only place you listen to his voice is in a service you've got to get to where you're so hungry to hear his voice it doesn't have to wait till Sunday or Wednesday night that you get up Monday morning like I need to hear you because I'm getting ready to walk into the lion's den as my boss wants to tempt me with all the kinds of junk and show me the pictures on the computer and send me inappropriate things or joke about inappropriate things and they want to test my resolve to follow him. And so we've been in this series in the book of Daniel and this is the same thing. When we read the Bible, here's the thing. The Bible says only you can understand it if the Holy Spirit illuminates this to you. And so we need the help of the Holy Spirit and he's done that in the worship time. I felt the Holy Spirit. He's here and he's about to help you understand his word. Because when you hear stories like you heard in the childhood about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and King Nebuchadnezzar, right, has challenged them to bow down to him. We're going to back up the beginning again of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 through 21. Before I go any further, you know, how many of you watched uh, sitcoms growing up? You know, I'm, I'm 43 years old. And so I'm kind of a child of the 80s, early 90s, really. And so Dukes of Hazard. How many watched Dukes of Hazard? And I mean, that show's fun. And you couldn't watch that show without the narrator because he always clues you into what's happening. Like, these boys are in a lot of trouble. I mean, like, that's every episode, but you got to have the guy tell you, these boys are in a lot of trouble. It makes it exciting, right? And then it goes to commercial. Do, 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 do. You know, they get, whatever the, I can't do it. The, da, 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 da. And they're getting ready to jump over something, right? And it freezes. Come on, you know, that's how it always went to commercial, right? Or that was the end of the episode. And so I grew up with these. And these are unreal characters, right? Not real characters, but they're put in these unreal circumstances. And that's their day-to-day -day life. And that's what we were fed as our entertainment. If you went back 25 years before me to the culture then, there would also be these 30-minute or half-hour sitcoms featuring people you knew weren't real getting in some of the most unusual and ridiculous predicaments. Like, I love Lucy. I mean, they project it as this is how American life is, right? And you know that's what messed up all the other countries. That's why people were wearing like the Michael Jackson glove decades after that wasn't cool anymore in the United States. You know, we, we fed them this is the American life. And none of us really lived like I Love Lucy, did we? You know, back then they made the lady look silly. Now it's the dad, you know. Whatever they're attacking at the time, 
whatever role in the family they're attacking. But, but I love Lucy, the honeymooners. One of these days, Alice. One of these days. Isn't that how it went? How'd it go? Pow, right in the kisser. Or up to the moon. And you know what? Today, that would be that just like, I mean, my, my training in um, political correctness and anti-abuse and DHS, you know, everything that surrounds that, you're like, you can't be threatening to hit your wife on TV. That's a terrible show. And see, that was entertainment then, right? Just culturally, it's different. And Beverly Hillbillies. I mean, that's great. Who loves the idea of some people who are down and out become millionaires and they show all the rich people how to really live, how to have fun? But then there's reality TV, this new phenomenon where, where it, the basic point of reality TV is that when you, you drop normal people, everyday people, into stressful and unusual situations and they become anything but normal people. Now, I would venture to guess they probably weren't really normal people before they got on the show. That's why they opened themselves up to being on that kind of show. But, but let's just go with their premise that it's normal people put in abnormal, stressful situations and they become anything but normal people. It's highly edi edited and it's not that much reality really, but we get caught up in watching these supposedly normal people, people just like us, in high drama and high stakes situations. But you know what? That's where the devil also slipped in a lot of things on us. I love Seinfeld, and I'll admit it. I, I hardly missed a Seinfeld episode. The humor in that just killed me. But there's a lot of inappropriate, very ungodly things that got passed through Seinfeld too. Same thing with Office. I love that, but I had to quit watching that because it was just the, the immorality would keep, keep getting pushed into the home. We watch people on Survivor, right, trying to outwit their peers. A group of people start out on an island, and the, the whole thing is you're supposedly working together, but really you're talking about each other and trying to get each other voted off because you win money at the end. So it was, it was designed to get people gossiping and backbiting. And then we watch people try to be overnight sensations on like American Idol and The X Factor, right? And, and you know what, what parts of those shows people watch the most was not all the people making it up to the finals, their biggest times of people watching was in the tryouts, the auditions. Because everybody loves to watch people fail big, right? And make a fool of themselves. And, and so you want to watch all the people where they tell, hey, your friends are no friends. They should have told you you can't sing. You know, and, and those type of things. We love that and we laugh at it. And then we watch shows like The Bachelor. Supposedly an ordinary guy, right? Or maybe not completely ordinary, but who has, who has to pick a dream girl from 12 beautiful applicants and he's dating them right with each other knowing that they're dating each other and all this that's real life isn't it I mean that would really work with women right if it, they knew you're dating like 11 other girls too at the same time how long do you think that last and they really feed us this lie in reality TV but this story that we pick up on in the first chapter of Daniel today is just like reality TV in a way you got King Nebuchadnezzar who conquered the kingdom of Judah he destroyed Jerusalem, God's, God's people's homeland, and took the treasure from their temple and took all their strongest and brightest young men with him back to Babylon, which is, which is modern-day Iraq. And all the best of the best of the kingdom are put in the palace. So really, it's the apprentice. You know, the apprentice was where people are trying to get this corporate job and work for a millionaire. And if you'd watch that show knowing he's going to be a president, wouldn't it be a whole different show? You know, but they're all vying for this job, and it's like if you don't do good, then you're you're, you're fired. I can't do it. We had a little boy that comes to first service by him uh, with his couple of friends. He can do a good Donald Trump if you want that. But anyway, his name's Kenyon, right? Is it Kenyon or Chris that does a Chris does a good Donald Trump? But the, the apprentice, right? And so this is apprentice Babylon because you've got these finest young men all being they're captive, right? They can't do anything about it, but they got this opportunity in their captivity to be treated like royalty, literally eat from the king's table, and they're trying to find the best of the best because King Nebuchadnezzar, I have to say, as much as I hate to say an ungodly man has a smart tactic, but from a military strategy point, he goes to these kingdoms, captures, selects the best of the men, uh, I mean the young men who have a lot of life ahead of them and are sharp and strong, and he selects the best of the best, and then he does like the apprentice. It's a selection process, and what he does is when he captures another nation, that guy is the one that's in charge of bringing up the next guys. So he's basically, this process of selection, he's raising up these mighty warriors, sharp, I mean, the best of the best. He's trying to conquer the world. 
And so through this time, they're being selected. They're all being trained the same thing. They're being taught the same thing. They're eating the same food. And they're all in the same place. And Nebuchadnezzar is watching to see who will emerge, who is the best of the best. But the stakes here aren't getting the girl like the bachelor or recording a CD like American Idol or winning millions of dollars like any of the other shows. The stakes are much higher. The prize is a high position working for the king, leading the captive kingdoms. But if you are chosen, if you win, you get to join the leadership team of the strongest power in the world. And not only do you get the position of, and prestige, your position of power can provide protection for your own people. Think about this. If the United States was taken under captivity, and one of you here today was selected by the captive nation, you know, let's just go far-fetched. Let's just say Russia captured us. That's old, so we we're not really, you know, but they captured us, right? And one of you got selected, and they're grooming you to be in charge of the next country that they capture. You have, everybody in this room should be vying for you, because if we have an American get in that position, we have someone who has the ear of the captive leaders, or the, or the captors, to get us favor. And here's the thing, King Nebuchadnezzar is not to be messed with. It's not like you just lose and get voted off the island or get voted out of Babylon. I mean, this is the Apprentice Babylon edition, but the stakes are so high, you lose your head, literally. So you're going to be killed. Not only do you lose out for your people, but you lose your life. It's high stakes. This king has a temper. You don't want to cross him. This one contest, you do not want to lose. You do what the king says, you work hard, position yourself above all the other captives, and you get to live, and maybe, just maybe, get a good job and influence too. If this was today, if this was reality TV today, you'd have cameras following this every moment to watch this play out. I mean, this would be the show of all shows because this would really be Survivor. But not only are the captives staying in the palace while the rest of their countrymen are starving and oppressed, they're eating gourmet meals, every meal from the king's table. He's smart enough to know that if you treat them like royalty, they'll begin to act like royalty. And so in his selection process, he makes sure they eat the best of the best. There's one problem for the children of Israel. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and David, God's rules are very specific. You don't eat food. At that time, there's the rules where you don't eat food that had been offered up to false gods, and Nebuchadnezzar wanted to be a god. He wanted to be worshipped by his people. And eating the king's food was in direct obedience, disobedience to God, yet everyone else is doing this. It's not that the food doesn't look good or smell good. It's wonderful. It's the best. But God has given them strict instructions. The Hebrews had a very clear set of guidelines about what they were to eat. And the food from the king's table is in clear violation of the guidelines given by God. If they eat the food, no doubt about it, they'll be sinning against God. And no doubt this is intentional on the part of King Nebuchadnezzar. He knows their laws. He knows what they're supposed to eat. Nebuchadnezzar wants to break down their traditions and beliefs. He's very smart about this. If he challenges them on disobeying their God and he wins, then once they've given up their, their utmost position with their God, then they no longer have strength in their belief system. They have to accept another one. They have to take on the beliefs of this new nation because they've given up their old, their, their old ways. He wants to be their God, so he says, let's see how these laws hold up here. Let's see how serious you are about obeying God. And all the captives have the same rules of God. The table is set, the food uh, they're not supposed to eat is before them. It looks good, it smells good, but it's sin. And what happens? Before you know it, everyone digs in. And they are feasting at the table of the king, and it's a difficult situation for Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Everyone around them is doing it. And their natural mind, it just makes sense to say, you have to eat something. It's like you, can, you can't just not eat. God doesn't want you to starve, does he? I mean, he wouldn't expect that. And after all, everyone else is doing it, right? God knows we're captors. God would understand. In this situation, when he made his laws, surely he understood where we'd be. And we often do that in our culture. God understands. I mean, listen, if I'm, at, if I'm to stand against sexual immorality in our culture, I'm just being ostracized. And nobody wants to hear about Jesus because I'm just a hater. And, and, and I'm spreading hate. 
I've been labeled, and, and if I'm labeled, then nobody will hear me, and so it's easier just to do what everybody else is doing. If you're a parent, you've heard that excuse one time or another. But mom, dad, everybody's doing it. And there's a standard answer taught in parenting school, I think. Every parent has probably responded or will respond like this. Everyone's doing it? Well, if everyone was jumping off a cliff, would you do it too? How many have said that to their child? If everybody was jumping off a cliff, would you do it too? It's just one of those things parents say. You'll, you'll say it too one day if you haven't already as a parent. I mean, every parent is doing it, right? I wish only children and students gave that excuse. We learn it young, but unfortunately, too many of us continue to use that same excuse all through life. We could go through all the examples that everybody would amen, like sex before marriage, and we'd say, yeah, that's wrong, and, and uh, the Bible says it's wrong, and, and so amen on that. Cheating on your taxes, yeah, that's a sin, and, and, and everybody might be doing it, but it's still wrong, and telling a lie, yeah, you shouldn't be a liar. Homosexuality, oh yeah, that we're, we're all against that, and Allowing smut to enter my home on television, oh yeah. But then what about complacency? See, that's a sin we don't really talk about because that's a little more sensitive. That, that takes away our comfort zone. We can't just sit in the pew anymore and, and let other people go to hell. We've got to do something about it, right? Or, or, or the fact that we're gossiping about others. You know, we don't want to think of that as a sin. That's just, I'm just saying how it is. I mean, it's just the truth. If you knew them like I know them, you know it's the truth. And we'll pat ourselves on the back and let ourselves gossip and tear at others and not call it what it is. Everybody's doing it. I mean, they talked about me. If you heard what they said about me, does that make it right? If not, does that make it acceptable? If not acceptable, does it make it, does it not really make it sin? I mean, does it negate it being sin if you can make an excuse for it? Everyone's doing it. I'm concerned. There appears to be a pattern. We seem to be allowing our culture and the people around us to redefine what's right and wrong. Some of you say, no, I'm not. I mean, I'm clear on my Facebook page. I'm clear everywhere else that what's sin and not. But instead of a solid, unchanging standard of the Bible, we're instead subject to the shifting winds of our culture. Instead of us realizing that the world is lost and dying and we need to be full of the Holy Spirit and spreading the gospel and winning others for Christ, we're instead throwing stones at the unbelievers, telling them how awful they are. And that's sin too. But yet we'll pat ourselves on the back and say somehow it's excusable because, well, pastor, you just need to face the facts. The world has changed, and it's my job to let them know they've changed. You're right, the world's changed. But the challenge is the Bible has not changed. What's right has not changed. What's wrong has not changed. Regardless of how many people are doing it, regardless of what you see as popular to do on social media or what the media on TV is doing and how they slander each other and how they backbite and how they gossip and how they carry on, regardless of what they're doing, it still makes, it's still wrong in God's eyes. For Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's not, a lot's on the line. They need to win. They also need to eat physically. And this is the only food offered. And after all, their situation is difficult. They are captives. Every other captive is eating the food. And from this story, we learn, we learn how to respond when everyone's doing it. We need to learn God's response of what we do when everyone's doing it. Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 says, But Daniel resolved. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Daniel didn't have a new word from God. Daniel had won tickets to the latest evangelistic crusade going on with some kind of new word that's just going to revolutionize your walk with God. Daniel didn't have some kind of new um, worship service he had attended that just got him fired. He didn't have it. He resolved, he resolved to make a decision. And what does it mean when you resolve? The dictionary definition is to make a firm decision about Daniel made a firm decision based on what he already knew of God. I know what God has told me to do. I know what is right. I don't care what anyone else says or everyone else does. I've made a firm decision to obey God. That's the first thing, how to respond to everyone's doing it. There's two things. The first one is make the decision ahead of time. Make the decision ahead of time. Right now, this week, you will be tempted in some form or fashion 
and it's probably the usual. And right now you have the opportunity, because God's word is speaking to you, to make a decision that I resolve. I resolve that I will run from that temptation. I will not bend. I will not quiver in front of the enemy. I will not defile myself with the enemy's food. Whatever he's offering, I don't want it. You have to resolve. It's a strong decision made ahead of time. You have resolved not to bend, not to fail. Like Daniel, resolve to do what's right, to obey God and follow truth. And this is so important. Decide before you're faced with the decision. I've decided to be a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. I have decided how I will respond to temptation. I have decided how I respond to the argument that everyone's doing it. Decide before the moment. In fact, decide right now. I won't cheat on my spouse. I won't have an affair. But, but Pastor CJ, why are you saying that? Has there been temptation? No. I mean... I eat enough and keep myself out of shape enough and don't you know, get haircuts off enough or shave enough that's usually not a problem for me. I don't have anybody knocking on my door. But I make the decision now. I love my wife and I know because I know what it was like before God brought her in my life and I know that he's brought the best of the best of the best to me and there's no way I'm going to trample on that. So I make the decision now while there's not temptation that I will not cheat on my wife. I will not have an affair. I mean... I can get fat and still run good, and I can tell you that if you ever see me running from the church, like kicking my rear end with my heels, that's probably the only instance you'll see me running unless there's like, you know, free burgers at McDonald's. The two instances somebody tempted me to have an affair with my wife if you see me running fast away from the church, and there's burgers. Because fire, we got fire extinguishers, you know. Anything else I can handle. You know, burglar, well, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that alone, but... I'm prepared, you know, and, and anything else. And God's my protector and all that, but I'll run. I'll run for, for my life if someone was to tempt me. So I, I resolve now, before there's ever a temptation, I will not cheat my wife. I decide right now I will not gossip or listen to gossip. And the second half of that is almost more important than the first part because gossip does not exist without a listening ear. People are not successful in continuing gossip if there's nobody that will listen to them. You want to know what got me more so than maybe a worship service one time? I almost jumped and shouted and ran around the church. If someone came to me one time and said, Pastor, there was someone that was talking negatively about someone in the church, and I told them they need to stop it. It was gossip. I said, oh, praise Jesus. For once, somebody didn't say, you need to go talk to Pastor. It made it my problem. They took care of it. Smack. It was done. They took care of church discipline right there, and I was like, praise Jesus. We're building a team. <laughs> you know? Decide right now. I won't have sex outside of marriage. I don't care if everyone's doing it. You can stand for purity. Decide right now. Decide I will not gossip or listen to gossip. Decide I won't pollute my body with addictive substances. I could go on and on. There's so many things that we have to make the decision not to be tempted by. But it's time that the church people who claim to be followers of Christ start acting like it and quit letting culture dictate our every action. And listen, I'm not talking about behavior change. That doesn't work. I'm not talking about that you resolve that I'm going to just make myself not do things. You're resolving that I will live according to God's word, which requires his help every day. And so I don't do it without him. I don't unyoke Jesus from the yoke. I let him help me and carry the burden with me and walk with me. What does that look like? That's church lingo. Okay, yeah, we get caught up in that. Let me just tell you, that's, this is how that, this looks. You get up in the morning, you turn on some worship music, and you, you, you let... Before the enemy has a chance to get a hold of your mind, you start filling yourself with the praises of the king. And you listen. And you take whatever your time in the car, and you look like an idiot singing out loud and all this and praising and raising your hands when you're sitting in two hours of traffic in Bella Vista trying to get to the Walmart home office. You do those things. And, and then by the time you're there, you're, you're opening up your Bible, and you get whatever time you can, the Holy Spirit revealed to me your word, and you spend time in his word. And then you walk in, and you're praying as you're walking into the workplace. You're saying, God, let me be a light in this dark place. Use me. I'm willing. Make the opportunity obvious, and I'll step through the door, and you use me. And next thing you know, you're having prayer against the rules in your office with someone who has cancer, and they get healed. Or you're praying for someone who their marriage is about to fall apart, and it comes together. And all the divorced friends that were trying to give them uh, advice on how to keep their marriage you know in the world's eye just get the chance to see the power of God heal a marriage 
And that's what happens day to day then. Next thing you know, it's not that you're some holy person walking around and you got the corner on the market of God. It's just you were willing and you resolved before the temptation came to be complacent, to be a gossip, to, to be a, in addictions. Before it happened, you resolved. Every morning I get up and I resolve, I will obey the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords with everything I've got. And you read these stories in the Bible and you think of them as fairy tales. These were, these were normal men. This was reality TV better than reality TV. Ordinary men put in unordinary circumstances by the all-powerful God to show His power, not theirs. And you're an ordinary person that needs to be put in a circumstance where if God doesn't show up, you're going to look foolish. If you're in such a comfortable lifestyle, living for God, calling yourself a Christian, everything's comfortable, then, then you need to get shooken up a little. You need to get put in some situations where if God doesn't show up and prove himself, you're going to look stupid. And you'll see him show up. Because he's not here to make you look stupid, but he's sure here to show that he's still interacting with his people. And he's still interacting with this world. And not just interacting, but he's here to rescue and save. And in verse 8b, he asked the chief official for permission, Daniel did, not to defile himself in this way. He asked for permission. See, I thought as a Christian that when you're, the world is trying to tempt you, you're supposed to throw your shoulders back, puff out your chest, and say, I'm a Christian. I don't do that. How dare you, you tempt me with a king's meat? How dare you be a non-believer and act like one too? No. In humility, which that word is fading. As Christians, we need to reconnect with that word and the meaning. But with humility, he comes and says, if you'll allow me just a short time to not defile myself with the king's meat. And the, and, and, and the king's guy says, you know what, if this doesn't work, I mean, 10 days, how many has ever done a diet, uh, any kind of diet or one of these things like Body for Life or Atkins or all that stuff? In 10 days, do you see much difference? Other than headaches maybe sometimes and hangry and you know, emotional changes like that? No, you don't see physical changes, but this was a supernatural challenge, right? This was a supernatural challenge. This wasn't a weight loss challenge. So he says, let me for a time. And the guy says, I will lose my head if this goes wrong. But Daniel respectfully asked. He did it with humility. And God proved himself to him and to the other. Because by the time it was over, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel looked better than all the other guys eating the choice foods from the king's table. They had, they had salads and water. Well, they had vegetables and water. But I wonder, why in the world did he ask for permission? We, we sometimes see resolving as doing a crusade. I'm resolving and I'm proclaiming to everyone how I've arrived and I do things God's way. And then we proclaim with pride about what we're going to do and when we fail we get embarrassed and then we're scared to do it again because we failed you see Daniel wasn't wearing his his request like a badge of honor it was just about obedience it wasn't about pride it was just about I don't want to disobey my God please allow me to not disobey my God So first, you make the decision before the temptation, and second, keep the right attitude. Again, it was not an act of rebellion on Daniel's part. This was an act of humility. This was an act of righteousness, not self-righteousness. The same heart that led Daniel to the right decision led him to the right attitude. His first response, his initial attitude was, I'm going to do the right thing the right way. You know, we had some of the inmates from Benton County come help us on the project. I've done jail ministry, and and been around folks, and I don't talk to them or think of them or react to them in any reference that has to be where, where they're at or the stripes are wearing or anything like that. And someone made a comment is, um, hey, I noticed you don't really reference to them being in jail and things like that. I said, no, it's inconsequential because there are people in our churches that are in prisons in their heart. Amen. And so it's inconsequential about their environment. In fact, there were some righteous men, you know, Paul and Silas were in prison and they started singing hymns at midnight. So that doesn't define them where they're at. 
It's matters of the heart. It's, it's the fact that maybe matters of the heart got them there, and that's what we need to deal with, but that doesn't define them. In his first response, his initial attitude, David says, I'm going to do the right thing the right way. Not just do the right thing, but I'm going to do it the right way with humility. You know what? I'm afraid sometimes we get mad and we want to fight without, the first, without first trying to simply do the right thing with a good attitude. To serve God with compassion and love for others and with a humble heart. We give Christianity a bad name because of our hostile attitude. And you can't do the right thing with the right attitude and not discredit. You can do the right thing with the right attitude and not discredit the body of Christ in the process. Because every time we step out with pride or a haughty spirit, when we begin to pro profess Christ, we turn people off to it. We make it even harder for others to reach them. Make the right decision. Do the right thing. And do it with the right attitude. When you do it with the right attitude, people will respect you. When you come to the middle of the night and they made a really stupid decision that landed them in a lot of trouble, and you don't berate them for that, or say, well, if you'd been, been coming to church, this wouldn't happen. If you'd been doing all the right things, this wouldn't happen. We're not there to smack their hand and correct them. But they just put their hand and say, you know what? I've made plenty of mistakes myself, but God right now can make all things new. He can make beauty from ashes. He can write a new story in your life. He can put a new song in your heart. And I'm here to stand with you. I'll pray with you. I'll see you through you. If you turn from him and walk away again, I can't guarantee his protection and his provision over you. I can't guarantee that because you've been contradiction his word. But if you will follow him, I'll pray with you right now and, and he can change things for you. You can do the right thing with the right attitude and not discredit the body of Christ. If I'm not on a crusade this morning, it's not, I'm not crusading in front of you trying to act like I've got it together and that I'm supposing that you don't. If that's what you're getting out of this, then you're not really listening to my heart. You may hear my words. What I'm saying is, what troubles me is I'm saying that followers of Jesus Christ should look different and act different than the world around them. Our protest, signs, our protest signs shouldn't be memes on Facebook. Just because we're not standing out there burning down buildings and holding up signs doesn't mean that we're not on a crusade and we're not doing the same thing that the world is doing. We're just doing it in the name of Christ instead. It's time for us to affect our culture instead of our culture affecting us. To do what's right, to do it with the right attitude. When you, when you do, God responds. If you want to know why there's not fruit in your life, you want to know why you, God's not interacting in real time with you, you don't feel like He's speaking to you, you don't feel His Spirit is moving, then maybe there's pride, maybe there's contention for the world, maybe you're Jonah who can't stand the Ninevites and don't care whether they come to know God, you'd rather than just burn, and, and you don't want to admit that to anybody, but you just despise anybody who is leftist or whatever or, or against your side. Verse 9, now God has caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. His captor, his Isis. Now God has caused Isis. Oh, Pastor CJ, you're way messed up now. Now God has caused ISIS to show favor and sympathy. Oh, really? Is that such a far stretch? Is ISIS capturing people groups and enslaving them and beheading them if they don't obey? That's what King Nebuchadnezzar, this is a story. This is your Bible. This is what you profess that you follow, that God, that this is the story of your people. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were adopted into the family of, of God, and, and you are too. They are God's people, and you are adopted into that family. And so this is your brother your brothers in, in Christ, who, who they had ISIS capture them. They could lose their head if they didn't do what they're supposed to do and convert because Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to convert to their style of Islam of the day. And Daniel had the audacity to come to ISIS and ask for them to allow them to still be obedient to his God. He took a big chance and he did, and now God caused 
ISIS of that time to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. And this is probably not what Daniel expected. Daniel probably expected a fight, a showdown. But when you do right with the right attitude, God begins to work on the details. It wasn't Daniel's persuasive words that affected the official. It wasn't his own means. It wasn't his own abilities. God caused it. When I do the right thing with the right attitude, God intervenes. Next week we're going to take the second part of this message and we're going to look at seven things that God does when you've crossed that bridge of doing the right things with the right attitude. Seven things that God does. We're going to go into that next week. But my challenge, again, I take you back to, where's your fruit? Do you feel God's power interacting in your life now? I don't need to hear the answer to that because it's, it's not between me and you, it's between you and God. But do you? If it's not registering, you're saying, I don't know, I don't really buy into CJ, I'm not understanding, then this is where the church really is messed up. We should be walking life together. If you'd been with me the last two weeks and seen some of the people that I've encountered that God put in my path and what happened in those conversations, then that'd be obvious. So that means that somehow we've got to come together more. That goes all the way back to my messages on community. We've got to walk life together. If you're so busy and so tied up with other things that you're not seeing the power of God working around you, then you're too busy. Then you're making other things more important than the power of God. When I grew up, there was churches where, where I'd see the power of God moving. And my dad's church in Nebraska, you know, there's, there's things, there's problems, yes, but then when the problems worked out and God moved, people assembled together. Not just at church service, but they came together. And as they began to th talk about the things of God, and new believers came in and they saw the power of God working in others, and they prayed for people and they're healed, and they prayed for people and they're delivered, and it just kept producing more disciples. And right now, like I did in first service, we did recently on Wednesday night, I look at these empty seats. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yes, I'm going to count them all. 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40, 41. Brad's taking up two, so he's not making room for others. No, 42, 43, just mess with you. 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, 49. Somewhere around 50, and there's more that we can set up in the foyer. We've done it before. And listen, it's not about filling chairs or just building church attendance. But those chairs represent, they represent that, that kid in foster care that just got yanked out of their home and, and there's abuse in their home and they have no reference for a good heavenly father because they have no reference of a good father. And, and they get a chance to be pulled into a situation where there's godly people who have taken them to their home and now they're sitting in a church service after just enduring all that junk and they hear that there's hope. There's a God who loves them. And, and there's more to life than the abuse that they've experienced. And then there's that, that husband that their wife just said they're leaving them and they don't see any way that there could be any, uh, any restoration. But the power of God through His people inter interacting in their lives bring a marriage back together. And then there's that teen, that teen that would be sitting here that because like the children of Israel, their parents who experienced the power of God have let loose of that and they never really experienced it because their parents quit talking about it and so they have no reference point for the power of God and so now they're starting to think they're brainwashed and they're listening to their atheist friends and they think this is all hogwash and I'm wasting my life and I'm ready to walk away from God completely and never believe in Him again. And that could represent most of the empty seats actually because there's a whole generation that's being fed that. You see, it's not just our neck on the line. The pagan king isn't just coming for our head. He's coming for the heads of the others. And while we get so busy, caught up in our own pain, and not turning it over to God and letting him deliver us, then, other, then it's just multiplying. You see, it's the reverse of discipleship. The devil likes to take what God does, and he likes to create a, an evil opposite of it. And so what's growing is not discipleship in people's lives being healed, but what's growing is people are getting pulled away from the truth of God's word and their lives are becoming a wreck. And so churches by the hundreds are closing the doors. Ministers are, when there's nobody to preach to, they're leaving their pulpits. And in the United States, we're losing ministers at record rate. There's a spiritual battle going on, yes, that's for sure. And if you don't believe that, then, then you're not placing the right respect on the problems that you're going through in your life but that is the enemy coming against you so today we're confronted with where's our fruit the word of God talks about it like the fruit that grows from, from something that's been planted 
Today, there's a seed planted in your life from God's word. And someone may water it, but you eventually need to see fruit grow from that. And if you aren't sharing what God is doing in your life, then you're not bearing fruit. And if you don't feel like you have something to share in your life, then you're not experiencing the power of God for yourself. And how do I do that, Pastor CJ? Just what I said. You begin by, God, I need you to be my Lord and Savior. I need you to be my king. I can no longer put my trust in the kings of this land and the presidents and kings. I need a true king who will lead and guide me, who will be with me through the darkest hours and will speak life into me. So with every head bowed and eye closed this morning, if, and I'm just doing this because I don't want distractions, it's not because we're worried about embarrassing anybody because Jesus said, if you're embarrassed of me in front of men, I'll be embarrassed of you in front of the Father. So you need to be willing to step up with boldness. If you're here and you need Jesus in your life, you need him to be your king, you no longer can control the things of your life and you know that, that you need a savior. If you're here this morning and you want me to pray for you, receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want you to raise your hand. And this is a matter of eternity because this life is temporary. We never know what we're promised, how long, and the Lord will return one day, and then everybody's time is done to make the decision. But now is your time. You have to, have, you have to resolve that now is the time I'm going to make that decision. Just a few more minutes. Jesus, we thank you. Now, believers... I trust that that means everyone here has made a decision to follow Christ. And if you didn't raise your hand, then I pray that you'll, you'll seek out a believer, myself or someone, to pray with you. That you may understand the seriousness of, of the decision before you. But believers, I pray right now that in Jesus' name that we no longer hide out from the resolve that we need to make. That we will not bend to the temptation to complacency, to gossip, to anything that's keeping us from, from experiencing the power of God in our lives, that we will surrender that right now. Jesus, I come to you and just ask, Lord, right now that you speak to hearts in this place. Before we leave this place, that no one would leave the same as they came, but God, that you would change our lives. That God, we would not be satisfied with the way things have gone or have been going, but God, we want you to continually guide us and bring opportunity for us to experience you every day. Lord, that we be spreading the, the truth of your gospel, Lord, that may save people from the mess of their lives. And that, God, we won't be satisfied with playing church or just playing Christian, but, God, truly, we want to know what it's like to interact with you daily. We just thank you and praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love y'all. Um, all I can say is the journey begins now. When you walk out, you keep praying, God, show yourself to me. Give me opportunities to share your love with others, to share the story. And also, if I don't feel like I'm experiencing God every day, God, show yourself to me. Interact with me. Speak to me. I want to listen and hear you. And he'll be faithful to do it. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful Sunday. And we'll see you Wednesday night at 630.